Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. And I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. So Anne, as you know, our guest today, Danny Rosen, was introduced to me through our mutual friend, Jeff Slater. And when I looked at Danny's LinkedIn profile and saw that we have 76 mutual connections, none of which come from being in a shared industry... I realized it was just inevitable that at some point we were going to cross paths. So what I want to say about Danny is he is someone who has been making a difference in the world since he was a teenager. Since then, his impact has only gotten larger. Right out of college, he and a close friend co-founded Brand Fuel, which is a globally recognized brand merchandising company. And even at that very young age, they had their vision, which was to elevate the entire industry. He also co-founded Band Together in 2001 in the wake of 9-11, and since then, the organization has been an amazing partner to nonprofits in the Triangle area here in North Carolina. I want to just end the intro with his LinkedIn description because it's so succinct and says so much about him. So his LinkedIn description reads, co-founder, community builder, music fanatic, marketing addict on a B-Corps journey, pathological optimist, dad. Danny, welcome to the podcast. We are so happy to have you here. And I'm going to turn it over to you now to talk about your journey, just how you got to where you are today and some of those significant moments along the way. Yeah, Thanks, Sherry and Anne. And big shout out to our mutual friend, Jeff. What a a consummate, just good human who has, I think, taught probably all of us a lot about what's important in this life. And I guess starting with what's important in this life, I think I'm one of those lucky people who have stumbled into the journey a bit. You talked about starting some things, brand fuel on the for-profit side, but we're a B Corp. So we're a company that focuses on using our business as a force for good in this world. And then the nonprofit side, you know, starting a lot of nonprofits, the probably the largest of which is band together, you know, raising a million dollars for a different cause in our community through live concerts every year. You know, somehow those things have come together. I think there's a lot of conversation in the marketplace around corporate social responsibility, businesses that are trusted or not trusted, transparency in business. You think about cause marketing opportunities that are legit or not legit. And you start thinking about companies that you want to support or work for. And I think early on, we were fortunate enough to just say, let's let's build a company that was really focused on you know, taking care of employees and not selling crap that ends up in the landfill. We call that brand fill in our business. And the alignment with nonprofits since day one has always been there. And so fortunately, the brand fuel band together or band fuel brand together thing, <laughs> it's really helped allow me to be on shows like this and to spread the good word in the B Corp community and to try some new things that others have never done before. But I, I think I would say that all of the things that I have done have been associated with the letter CO. So I just can't take credit for any of it by myself. It said in my LinkedIn profile, co-founder, co-president. I would say I'm also a, a co-conspirator, a 
collaborator, but I've never done cocaine. So, <laughs> so there's that. I think some of these things that I've been a part of starting can be aligned very well with that African proverb. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And so the uh, idea of having like a big tent mentality and collaborative and open source and not protective or insular or territorial, I think letting go of some of those things, protecting, you know, your IP and things like that, it's all important. But because I've been able to do that in my life early on before sustainability and CSR, ESG conversations, transparency, and these things seem to be very important in business today. We were early on there and that's allowed us to be successful. So I'm really proud of that. And then I'll just say one more thing. If I had to say there are four pillars in my life, it it certainly is family first, marketing second, philanthropy, and then music. I'm just an avid you know, live music goer at almost 56 years old. I'm not afraid to jump into a punk rock mosh pit. And I think when those things come together, which really is band together in a lot of ways, I'm at my happiest place. Well, I am happy to connect with you today. And I'm so curious where some of this kind of came from. I mean, I read a bit about you. We do we do our homework and I know you're a big Duke fan. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, big UNC Tar Heel fan. So I'm just curious, did you set out to start a brand marketing company? Like where did this come from? Just kind of being transparent about myself. When I was younger, I was dyslexic and my dad was a psychiatrist, so I'd go to his place of business. I'd get off there at the bus stop instead of at my house. I felt like people were looking at me, shaming me, guilting me, you know, making me feel smaller than I already was, knowing I'm going to get, you know, help for this dyslexic problem that I had. And I would go into Dr. Betty Yarbrough's office in the basement of his practice. And she had all these owls, I remember. She had an affinity for owls, which meant everybody's staring at me. More eyeballs. I hate owls, by the way. But I worked through that and struggled and got through that dyslexia when I was younger, fortunately. And predating that, I was adopted. So, you know, I was kind of a lot of people say, you know, you were given up by a family. I definitely like to say that I was chosen. So kind of having a, a different mentality about some of these things. So getting through dyslexia, embracing the adoption. I'm not a sh- tall person. I'm five, six and shrinking. You know, I'm not, <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to win any best looking dude contests. And I think the story probably starts with getting into a lot of trouble because of some of those things. I think I was acting out to get attention. I was trying to best myself in the classroom by being the class clown and the prankster to win the girls by being the funny guy and not really paying attention to some things that were probably more important. And so there was this sort of sense of agency, I think, that I was creating that was probably not the right sense of agency at a young age. But all of those things culminated in me getting a tremendous amount of demerits in my school. I had so many demerits. One teacher said, you, you've gotten more demerits than anyone in the history of our school, which started in 1728. <laughs> yeah, so I was told that I wouldn't graduate on time and that I had to figure out a way to work off those demerits. And so I had this bright idea to start a service organization, basically a club that would raise money for others in need and to accelerate working off those demerits in a faster fashion. So I started a club with some friends called the Happy Club. And the Happy Club's mission 
It's kind of funny now to think about it. The Happy Club's mission was to make people happy. Very general mission. And the thing that was cool about it was that we were doing fundraisers that had never been done before. And the fundraisers were things like a mismatch contest in a school where we had to wear ties every day and, and women had to wear dresses. And so we convinced the administration to allow people to dress up in all kinds of different clothes in this mismatch contest. And if you showed up wearing these clothes, you would pay a 3 or $4 entry fee. And we would collect those funds and we would give them to these children and families in need during Christmas time, those who didn't have the wherewithal to have great Christmas presents. And so we had incredible attendance. People showed up in droves, which was great. And we had lavish prizes. We didn't tell people what they would be, but first prize was a single ice skate. Uh, Second prize... Uh, a license plate from the attic. Third place, I remember I stole my sister's Barry Manilow album. That was third place, a used album. Uh, love Barry. Shout out to him, I guess. But people just love the humor of it all. So the the real beauty of what we were doing culminated on Christmas Eve. My friends who were 16 years old were able to drive us out on Christmas Eve with these gifts at a time when they were able to provide, these nonprofits provided the addresses and names and ages of the children. And we went to their actual houses on Christmas Eve. And we we did this thing called Ring and Run Christmas or Ding Dong Dash Christmas. So we used to ring the doorbell and run this time we rang the doorbell and we left a gift on the front steps. And I get choked up thinking about it now. But this is really cool. So where you started with the story is like, I kind of was a bit of a fuck up or I was just having fun as a kid, you know, whatever, trying to get the girl's attention. So you started this, I'm sorry, happy club. Is that what it was? Right. And then you raised some money. And what's so beautiful about this is this was kind of born out of a, a kid, which I'm kind of guessing sort of didn't feel like you really belonged, right? Between the dyslexia and, and wanting to be taller and all of those things. And so I just, I, I'm so curious about this. And a lot of people could go completely the opposite direction and have a, sort of a tough life or whatever, if you will. But you really went the direction of, well, as long as I'm going to be spending my weekends or whatever the demerits resulted in, I'm going to do something for good. And so I'm just curious about that. Where, where did that come from, do you think? Yeah, I think I just devoted my energy to those things. First of all, I was standing with a microphone in front of my entire class, you know, giving out these single ice skates and Barry Manilow albums and people were laughing and, and that felt really good. And then the second part was going out on Christmas and delivering these gifts and realizing that at 15, 16 years old, we can make a difference in someone's life. The empathy, I don't know, the radar, I mean, off the charts that evening and coming back and telling the story and then getting recognized by a global nonprofit called Operation Smile International. I've had some kids who were a part of the Happy Club said, mom and dad, you know, they, they had started, their parents had started Operation Smile. We had Operation Smile and the Happy Club. They're like, you should talk to these guys. They're crazy. They're fun. They're doing really cool fundraising. You know, maybe they could help Operation Smile or vice versa. And they approached us. And at 16 years old, when they said, hey, would you change your focus to helping kids around the world with cleft lips and cleft palates and putting real smiles on children's faces? And at 16, I was like, yeah, I was like sure, that sounds cool. Nine months later, I found myself in the Philippines in an operating room as a scrub nurse. So going from like this asshole prankster who was getting in trouble all the time to someone who was all of a sudden in the newspaper and was you know, helping 
improve the lives of people around the world, people my age, kids, helping kids. And now there are, I think there's 700 happy clubs around the world. Really proud of that. So just to tag on to what Anne said and what you've just said, it really sounds like what started was, let me do some good, let me volunteer as a way to work off these demerits and a way to get some attention. And then you discovered how good it felt. I mean, I know our listeners can't see your face as they're listening, but you're still getting emotional telling it all these years later. I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit more about what it was like to have this discovery of, oh, I started it for the attention and I really love how good it feels to be doing things for others. Because that sounds like what happened. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Again, I mentioned diverting the energy of being like the prankster, funny person to someone who actually found meaning in this life, doing things for other people. A lot of people will say, he's the most selfless person I've ever met, which is far from the truth. I mean, there's a lot of selfish motives. It makes me feel good first and foremost. You want to talk about a dopamine rush, holding up a check on a stage in front of 6,000 people in downtown Raleigh for a million dollars, everybody looking at you and all that work that we put into it and then going and meeting these families or these people that we're helping in the community and and just thinking about the ripple effect from that, that just feels good. So. That's one. I mean, it certainly has helped improve our business. My business partner, Robert Five Ashes, he's got a huge heart and he's done a lot of things in his life as well. That's one reason why I think we're compatible in the business. But both of us are, I think, known for starting nonprofits and doing good things in this world. And we do it for the right reasons, but it certainly has helped our business. It concerns me when people aren't willing to volunteer and help someone else because ultimately, you know, you start with helping someone else, but there's a lot of value in finding self-worth and meaning and direction. And for someone like me who needs a stronger sense of agency and likes to stand in front of a microphone and is a optimistic person who over-indexes on, on positivity and wants to be that center of attention, which I'd like to talk a little bit about in a minute, that's the other side of that which can hurt people, I am going to bulldoze through this world, believing in what I believe, trying to do things that help other people. Because in my mind, in my heart, I know we can do it. And I say, we, I'm willing to do the work. Uh, Not the smartest person in the room, but I will outwork anyone. And especially when it comes to things that are important, like family and community, my staff, who I love, I've got their backs. And I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but All of those things, I think, kind of answer your question a bit about why. And once you get a little bit of that bug, you want to do more of it. Again, it's like a dopamine rush. And so the flip of that, which I think is important because I know you all want to hear like not just all the good, there's a bad side. I mentioned the co, you know, so I'm married of 21 years. I've been in a business relationship with my business partner, Robert, for 25 years this year. We've been friends for 40 years. He was a part of the very first happy club. Uh, He was a troublemaker too. A lot of longevity in my life. But I will tell you that those two people, my wife, Nicole, and my business partner, Robert, the two people that I'm deeply embedded with more than anyone else in this world, that sense of agency and that wanting the dopamine rush and trying to start things and be the center of attention has really encumbered and and hurt those people that I love most. Both of them are introverts. I'm the extrovert. They want to be recognized. They want the opportunity to uh, feel good about themselves. 
And so I can take the light out of a room pretty quickly. And it took a long time for me to work through a lot of that and to realize that maybe they, they don't want the microphone. They just want to be asked or recognized. And in me mentioning them today, I might not have mentioned them 15 years ago. It was more about me. So some selfish behaviors and some things that I really regret in my life in terms of not making them more a part of the fabric of some of the things that I was doing and and putting them on a pedestal and reminding myself that there's no way in this world that any of this stuff happens. None of this recognition, none of these success points happen without amazing people like Robert and Nicole in my life, giving me the bandwidth, doing the things with our family or our staff so that I can do these things that they know I love. I'll add one more thought to that, which is I think a takeaway I have done a lot of individual therapy. Again, I mentioned my dad was a psychiatrist. I've done coupleship therapy with my wife when we were having struggles and also when we were at our highest points so that we could really work together when we were doing well because those low points in therapy are not easy and sometimes good things don't come out of it. And then with my business partner, every five or so years, we do business therapy. We do business coupleship therapy. What I learned about eight years ago was something called me, we, and us. And in therapy with Robert, we found out that if we didn't work on our own shit, the me, we couldn't work on our partnership, the we, and the us was brand fuel, the company. And so if we don't figure out our own, the challenges that we had when we were kids that we carry with us, the biases we've carried for 40 years, the issues with each other that we struggle with, that we have to identify and co-understand. There's just no way that we're going to get better as a company. Since that work, we've doubled in size and revenues and in employees, and our love and respect and trust for each other has increased exorbitantly. I never thought it could get better. We've been through a lot together. And I would say the same with Nicole. That relationship investment is super important. And all of that helps me become a better leader, you know, a friend, a husband, a dad, all that stuff. There's so much I love about what you're saying, and I'm just going to name a couple of them. One is you pointing to sometimes our greatest strengths are also the things that can get us in trouble and the importance of self-awareness and coming to understand that your willingness and your love of being the center of attention and having all this energy has allowed you to create amazing things. and recognizing that, oh, 24-7 with no regard to how it's impacting the people around me is not such a good thing. And so I just think it's such a powerful example of a strength that you have done so much good with and how recognizing that it isn't always the right thing for everyone else has just made you even more impactful. And so I just think that's just such an important piece to recognize and to share. And then the other piece was just the importance of working on the relationships in our life. And I just, I love that phrase, me, we, us. And we are so much stronger when each of us individually as me is clear on ourselves and how we interact. And so just thank you for putting that into the conversation because it's so important. 
I want to build on Sherry's point with the with the question, and that is, listen, things are probably going pretty well for you, and you know, you're getting the attention, you're getting the accolades, things are changing, things are growing, but something had to have happened to make you wake up a little bit to this impact that you are potentially having on other people. It's hard to see that if we're right in the middle of it. So I'm curious, was there something that happened that helped you have a greater realization of the kind of impact you were having? Yeah, I mean, my first thought is to talk about more about the empathy. I'll share a story with you. There are so many stories, but I just I think if you can put yourself in giving situations, if you can be vulnerable and open yourself up to the world and look at the good in the world, I think things start to happen where your eyes get open, your heart gets open a little bit more. I talk to a lot of strangers. I acknowledge people as I try and get eye contact and smile. Actually, this is funny. If you follow me on Strava, I bike a decent amount. Sometimes I'll write like 24 hellos, four disregards. So anybody I pass on a bike on the Greenway in Raleigh, I always wave my hand or I try and get, you know, just a stranger hello, especially if they don't look like me. And I don't be that creepy guy with like the young girl going by. I don't want to be that. So I'm aware (laughs) of that. But especially if it's someone who doesn't look like me and I just feel like I want to break through the, the difficulty that we're all dealing with in this life right now. And so I'm trying to acknowledge and bring a little bit of light into people's day. But empathy is is something that I don't think everybody has it, but I think you can develop it. It's like a muscle. So I'll just tell you one story, a band together story, and there are so many. But this is when I, I start to really realize what's important. And to your question, we worked with an organization called Kids Notes. Kids Notes is a, a fantastic nonprofit that gives children who are on the free and reduced lunch program, gives them um, funding to get not only instruments, but they get to learn how to play those instruments, 10 hours of instruction a week. And they also get transportation home. So the parents don't have to deal with getting them to and from. And a lot of these parents don't speak English. They've got three jobs. So these kids are in after school programs, learning string instruments, violins and cellos and things like that. So we've got a band called Trampled by Turtles, amazing band that's headlining. And the Kids Notes kids are going to open up for them at Red Hat Amphitheater, 6,000 people. And I'm... I am not someone who is backstage hanging out with the you know the bands. I just I'd rather be out with the hoi polloi and the community and my friends and just like hugging on people and I'll go get out into the the stands where everybody's out there watching the the show. And I'm standing next to this guy who's a lot taller than I am, which is easy to say. And I look <laughs> up at him and he's crying during the kids notes performance and after it was over you know he's wiping tears away and he didn't know who i was and i certainly didn't know who he was he didn't realize i had helped put this show on and and i just asked him i was like are you okay and he said man i'm more than okay he said that's my son up there see i'll start crying again man i i listened to him tell a story about how he thought his kids would end up playing football or basketball or selling drugs those are the pathways for him when he was a kid and He said, this program has just given him better grades and confidence and connection points never would have had. And he said, I have a, there's a black kid up there playing a violin. He just told this story to me as a stranger. I just, I just fist bumped him. I walked off. I was crying with this guy and I thought, man, I need more of that in my life. Let's keep doing this. So it's a, it's a question of empathy for one. For two, I would say maybe hustle. 
I think being called a hustler, you know, when I was in college in the 80s and 90s was probably a negative. I think today a hustler is an entrepreneur. So, you know, when I think about who I was when I went to college, there's a story there too that I think is kind of interesting. And I, and there's a couple takeaways. I am convinced that when I got in trouble and found out that I love community service, and started a nonprofit group or a service organization in high school that got picked up by Operation Smile. All of that, my story about being a scrub nurse in the operating room is the thing that got me into the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. It got me, I mean, I had good grades, not great grades. I, was, I played sports, you know, as a well-rounded kid at this point, but it wasn't about grades. It was about who I was as a person. I got into University of Virginia, all my friends were going to UVA, and I wanted to go to UNC. I wanted to do the path less traveled. I, I wanted to go to a public institution. I felt like I had a private school upbringing, very fortunate there. UVA was an extension of it, great college. But my parents said there are eight kids, combined family, divorce, remarriage, Armageddon, utopia, all of it. And my, my parents said, if you want to go to UNC Chapel Hill, you will have to pay the difference. And I was like, fuck you. Are you <laughs> right. kidding me? I got into Chapel Hill out of state. You know how hard that is? And you're going to make me pay. You're going to keep me from going to the school I really want to go to. And my dad said, we just can't afford it. And that's one takeaway for parents. Don't overextend yourself to send your kid to some school they want to go to because they like the basketball team or the color green. Do what you can afford. Don't break the bank. There are a lot of great colleges out there. And and the second takeaway has to do with my story, which was I chose Chapel Hill. I chose to fund the difference, which gave me rubber meets the road. I'm going to invest in my own college. And I cared a lot more about schools and studying and all of that versus partying and all the things that we did in college, which I did a lot of too. But I chose to make up the difference by creating t-shirts and selling them door to door. Uh, and the shirts were anti-Duke, Duke sucks t-shirts to your point early on. And I sold over 20,000 shirts when I were in college. Isn't there only like 50,000 kids at that school? So you basically hit half the students in a sense. Less kids than that, but this was for four years. And I was posting up. I had a whole team of lacrosse teams out selling these shirts with me. I learned so much. I learned marketing, sales. I was learning inventory. I wasn't paying tax, so I didn't learn anything about taxes. I owed the university probably some royalties. I didn't learn anything about that until my professional life. But I learned demographics. I learned about design. I learned how to manage vendor relations. I could go on and on. And this hustle that I was kind of forced to have that I found out was within me allowed me to, one, pay the difference in college, plus a hell of a lot more. I was buying a house sooner than anyone in my peer group, and I was thanking my parents instead of saying, fuck you. And I realized that the value of the lessons that I learned allowed me to not only realize what I was made of because I was forced in this difficult situation, but it also ended up being something that got me into the industry that I'm in. And here I am, you know, we run one of the largest branded merchandising agencies in the world. And it's because my parents said, you know, no, we're not going to pay, figure it out. And I did. I love that because it, it so speaks to 
We talk a lot on this podcast about sometimes it's our darkest days or darkest nights that we have no idea where it's going to lead. And not that that was necessarily the darkest, but rather it was a fuck you moment. Like this sucks. I got into you know a top university in the U.S. and and now you're going to make me pay for at least part of it. But what's so beautiful is you couldn't see at that point. You had no idea at that point that that was actually going to be the thing that led you to all these amazing things that you're working on now. So thanks, mom and dad. Yeah, thanks, mom and dad. <laughs> Well, the other interesting thread in your story is that these moments where you're like, this really sucks, completely transform your life. And so all those demerits became the building blocks for all the service work you have done since then. I mean, so much of what you're about and the work you do and the people you partner with is about service work and giving back and empathy and in fact, you had a comment you made. I can't remember if I read it in an article or if I heard you say it on another interview you've been on, but you used the phrase volunteering is a gateway drug to caring, which is just so cool. And so you have the whole service piece that comes out. And then this whole entrepreneurial part of you is discovered, is developed out of necessity to pay for college. You know, we can't always go back and draw such straight lines. And for you, there does seem to be two pretty straight lines that come out of difficult situations. Yeah, I'm really proud of working through the struggle. I I certainly have had struggles like a lot of people have had. I mean, I feel like I got... I landed in a great family through the adoption process and I had great a great family and and I've been very very fortunate with who I've been able to surround myself with having a good baseline for education but I have worked really hard and I've surrounded myself with great people like Nicole and Robert and Jeff I guess that there's a mirror reflection of that someone called me a cosmic glue stick one time <laughs> so you know whatever that means I like it it's like being open to the world, what it throws at you and finding the good in it. And there's so much to be said for doing things that are fun, you know, connective tissue to community, things that matter, and things that are unique. So I have this incredible Seth Godin post that came out this week that reminds me of some of that. So this idea of like imagining and creating things on your own like I've done with these people in my life. Uh, again, the co is really important there. If these things don't exist, you go create them. And so Seth Godin, one of the f- my favorite marketers of all time, he says, if you want to do improv, start a troupe. Don't wait to get picked. If you want to help animals, don't wait for vet school. Volunteer at an animal shelter right now. If you want to do marketing, find a good cause and spread the idea. Don't ask first. If you want to be more strategic or human or caring at your job, don't wait for the boss to ask. And this is the best part. Once we leave out the and, as in I want to do this and be well-paid and invited and approved of and always successful, then it's easier to do what we said that we wanted to do. And so it just I think that that's it right there. Like, go do it. Don't wait and try it, you know, all of it. I love it. It's, and I think this is so important because it's such a normal human condition to sort of wait, or will they like me, or is this the thing? And what I hear you saying via Seth Godin is just jump in. If it's something that's singing to you or making your heart sing, 
just go and do it. And it really sounds like you have sort of followed that throughout your life. Yeah. But this, so this is a social media. I've got two daughters. They're, you know, teenage daughters. They're amazing kids and they're caught up in social media a bit. I, I think they're pretty well grounded, but there's a lot of negativity around social media and how much time we spend and, you know, what's thrown at us that we don't necessarily want to see and, and, and all of the things that can be dark about social media, social peacocking, all of that's legit. People who have their profile pictures from 25 years ago or their AI generated stuff it kind of makes me smile. But <laughs> hey, I'm single, so it's it's a it's a real thing on the dating sites, trust me. <laughs> yeah, so you know, yeah, especially there. I think when social media is at its finest, I think it's a platform for helping. And so it's also a platform for finding your people. And so this idea of starting this thing that may be weird or different or unique in some way, I think you can find a population in these social networks that are very specific to you and what you want to do. So if you're looking for an organization that does crochet and they also love punk rock music, those people exist. You know, go find your people and go do it. <laughs> I love that. So I'm wondering, Danny, as you, as you look back on your life and you think about the little troublemaker that you were back in the day, if you could go back and give him any advice, what advice might you give him? I would say get outside of myself a little bit more. I mentioned life music experiences and sort of being in a mosh pit, which I've done since I was a teenager. I would do more of that, you know, mosh pit is like, I think there's a metaphor for life in there. You know, sometimes you get knocked down. Sometimes you got to get up by yourself. Sometimes someone will pick you up. The energy and the chaos of it all. I, I think I would also let go of some of the things you were just mentioning, Anne. Like, I wouldn't worry so much about what people thought about me. I learned that kind of later in life, not too late in life, fortunately. Matter of fact, there's a Instagram page, another short guy in my life, Cam Barker, and I started. It's called Stage Below. We just started it, and all it is is pictures of big heads in front of us at concerts that so we can't see like, <laughs> anything but the big heads and they're glorious heads. And so it's just like we're poking fun of being like short dudes who can't see. And so like <laughs> own your warts and make fun of yourself before others can, maybe. Mm. Um and I actually created something called the Short Man Front Row Access Card. It's a digital <laughs> design I created that I show tall people and they laugh and they let me stand in front of them. But I would start with that. And then I think kind of aligned with that. There's a great quote by Hunter S. Thompson that I, I love. As a matter of fact, there's a drink titled this at a speakeasy here called Auntie Betty's. It's worth checking out if you're in Raleigh. It's called Buy the Ticket, Take the Ride. And I love that Hunter S. Thompson says that in the bar at Ani Betty's, you can order a drink and basically you don't know what you're going to get. You tell them what liquor you like. So if I say I love tequila and then give them some adjectives, you know, I want it to be spicy. I want to have angels dancing on the tip of my tongue, you know, so they'll, they'll come back and say one angel dancing on the tips of your tongue, tequila drink that's been made custom for me. I love that. But this idea that I probably missed some opportunities by not taking the ride, by you know having the hustler mentality, you got to make money. My daughter's got it too. She was voted most likely to be a billionaire in high school, which is great. I missed my senior year 
I made a decision to go into the workforce right after college, but I missed an opportunity to go with all my friends to Colorado where they went mountain biking and skiing. And they lived in this place called the Mule Barn and they smoked weed and they, they listened to the Grateful Dead. And I was just, they were having a blast. I was making money, but I should have taken that year. I should have bought the ticket, taken the ride. And speaking of my daughter, who is very much like me, loves live music and and, and she's, she's great. And she's now a freshman at NC State. She recently invited me to jump out of a plane with her. And, uh, and I'll be 56 in a couple weeks. And you know I'm going to take the ride. And I'll have to share that <laughs> when we do that together. So That's I awesome. Take the ride. You know, it really sounds like what you are saying to your younger self is be open to more. Live a little more fully. And you didn't say these words, but it feels like it was implied is buy the ticket, take the ride, and it will all be okay. Yeah, I love that. Perfect. It will. Unless we fall to our deaths and you heard it here first. Um, <laughs> right. Well, hopefully not. Like, hopefully uh, this will not be breaking news. <laughs> no, will not. I'm, I'm completely, I, you know, I don't know about you all about jumping out of planes. I mean, I, first of all, there's certainly fear and high anxiety as you get older and things like that. But the idea that my you know, now 19-year-old daughter has asked me to do that with her, knowing that where she is in her life, which is she's very independent and she's trying to go out on her own, that in and of itself makes any of the pain and anguish. And if that's the way I go out, man, like I'm good with it. I am totally good with it. Well, I'm also hearing a joke in my head, you know, a Tar Heel and a wolf pack uh, (laughs) jump out of an airplane and there's there's something there. (laughs) You guys write the joke. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Danny, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today and to have this really amazing conversation with us. So thank you so, so very much. Yeah. Thank you all for, for having me. It's been a real treat talking to you. And I just love listening to all that you're putting out there. I love how you are able to pull such gems of wisdom and real stories, like real, real stories from people speaking from the heart and being vulnerable and open. And that's the stuff of legend on your podcast that will keep me coming back for more. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And I think that's going to wrap up our episode for today. We really hope you all enjoyed it and would love it if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes, or post it to your own social media. You can find information and previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. Please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. <laughs>